Lord, we thank you so much for this opportunity to come and sit under Heim's teaching that you've uh, led, I'm sure, him by your Holy Spirit. And so we ask uh, that you look after all of us, our families, those who couldn't be here. And we honor you, Lord, and we look forward to your encouragement tonight through your word. It's in Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Uh, tonight is part two, Paul part two. Um, last uh, and by the way, um, I've been kind of sluggish in sending out notes. There are notes available for for this entire study um, on the heroes of the Book of Acts. Uh, Michael taught one or two of those. Just one. Just one. And Dave, I don't remember if you taught one. Okay. So, all that to say, most most of the uh, classes are are in fairly detailed uh, note form. Um, and if you haven't had them, um, and you would like, just speak up. Okay. Yes. No, yeah. maybe. Is there life here? <laughs> what, what I know, Rachel, have? you can't say anything because you have an apple in your mouth. <laughs> All right. Um, and I have a good authority that um, next Wednesday night we will uh, change the word hero to heroines. Uh, so that's going to be somewhat of a... Um, uh, a new exciting venture but um, Paul of course as, as we've been seeing the last few uh, last couple of uh, Wednesday nights um, the first about 11 chapters uh, in Acts Peter is the dominant figure and as if you've been here you'll remember that the purpose of looking at the um, biographical and, and character information is simply, simply to say, to remind us how God uh, does some pretty phenomenal stuff with pots of clay. Uh, hopefully an encouragement to all of us to realize, to strive, like Paul says, to press forward and say, Lord, I know who I am, I'm a pot of clay, but you can do great things, and that's, that's my desire. Um, so, I think most of us have read uh, some form, uh, parts of the book of Acts, at least, or all of it. Um, and we noted some things about Paul that you may or may not be aware of. Um, he grew up in a multicultural environment. Um, his family spoke Hebrew, which was unusual uh, for a family, a family that lived outside of, of Israel, which is why he refers to himself as a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Uh, because typically Jewish people who live outside of the land of, of Israel at that time were Hellenized. In other words, they spoke Greek, they embraced a lot of the Greek culture. Uh, that was not the case with Paul, uh, 
remember that he was sent as a relatively young man to Jerusalem um, and studied with Gamaliel. You all remember Gamaliel? Um, here is probably one of the top five uh, rabbis in the land at the time. You don't get to hook up with a guy like Gamaliel unless you have some serious connections. Hmm. And our assumption is that uh, his father, Paul's father, was well off. How do we know that? educated. He, okay, how do we know that Paul's father uh, was was well off? He was a Roman citizen. Ah, he was able to purchase uh, Roman citizenship, which is why Paul was a Roman citizen. I thought that Paul said he was born. He, Paul was born a Roman citizen. The father purchased it? Most likely. Um, I mean, that that's some speculation, but it's a reasonable speculation. Um, and so, um, the family the family had serious connections in order for Paul to be able to come to Israel and study under Gamaliel. Um, and it was pretty clear that Saul was was not your garden variety kind of a young fellow. You had to be pretty bright to study with, with one of the top rabbis in the country uh, who was, as you know, a member of the Sanhedrin. Uh, Paul was also unusual in that he had his feet in two, in two types of culture. Uh, if, if you were here, remember I mentioned that he was able to quote from Greek poets um, one when he was in Athens and then also when he writes to Titus uh, he quotes from one of the poets in Greek, in, uh, in Crete rather and says uh, Titus keep those guys in a short leash because they're, they're lazy good for nothing rascals as one of their poets said um, so unusual kind of a guy as far as his background um, and he has a personality that doesn't quit um, and before he came to know Yeshua um, his mission was not just to uh, put followers of Yeshua in prison his mission was to exterminate the whole, the whole body, the whole movement. Um, and he was not only wanting to put men and women in, 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 uh, in jail, but he, he was also quite uh, willing, prepared to have them killed. Uh, case in point, of course, was Stephen. And last week we saw the fact that uh, uh, Paul signed off on on Stephen stoning that uh, people laid their clothes, they took off their outer garments, you know, to throw the 
the stones better, but Paul was consenting uh, to, to the killing of Stephen, which meant that they could not uh, act without his authorization, probably as, as a representative of the Sanhedrin. Um, in Acts chapter 9, we see that he was still breathing threats, murderous threats. You know, it, at least for me, it kind of gives a very visual picture. It's like it's like a a, a uh, I was going to say not a snake, but but a fire eating, fire spitting dragon. Uh, that's kind of the impression that that you have, of what Saul was like before Yeshua gets a hold of him. And, and this is the wild thing about how God gets a hold of him. It's a simple reminder that God is able to get a hold of people in ways that surprise us. Um, obviously, in this case, he gets off. He gets knocked off the donkey. He sees the light, and he gets who is the one talking to him. Mm-hmm. And remember. Uh, what was Yeshua's comments to, to Saul? Why are, you persecuting? Why are you persecuting me? me? Uh, very close identification between Saul, between Yeshua and, and his believers. Very strong statement about the fact that we, that Yeshua sees us as being identified with him, just like we're supposed to see ourselves as being identified with with him also. Um, So God takes all of that and he invests it in the expansion of the kingdom. Uh, We don't know exactly how many people came came to know the Lord through Saul's ministry. Hundreds, probably thousands. uh, Congregations being established all kinds of places. Uh, And remember what what God said to Ananias um, as Ananias was pulling out his beard and saying, God, do you want me to do what? Uh, what did Yeshua say to him? He's going to be my servant. He's going to be my servant and he's going to do what? Suffer. Well, before suffer, but yes, he will go before kings and so on and yes he will suffer and in 2nd Corinthians chapter 12 Paul list gives a litany of all the things that he experienced remember we talked about him being beaten uh, by Jewish people presumably in a synagogue um, 39 lashes remember why it was 39 No, there's more than that. So he couldn't die? <laughs> no. <laughs> 40 was the significant number, and he didn't want to acknowledge that. 40 was a very special number that was identified with Israel's history. And so you do not want to abuse that. And so people would be beaten 40 minus 1. Oh, yeah. I mean, you think to yourself, okay, uh, 39 lashes really makes a huge difference between that and 40. But that, that, was, that was tradition. Then he says, uh, that experience, I was beaten by the Romans, um, who just as a matter of course said, this guy is causing trouble, let's beat him. 
And then Paul, a couple of occasions, ends up saying, excuse me, I'm a Roman citizen. Um, I'm shipwrecked. Uh, it's a stoned, left for dead. Uh, and, and we saw last week that Paul probably had some kind of a uh, near, near-death experience, like uh, what people uh, talk about uh, when someone is almost clinically dead, but they, they come back from what seems to be death, and they come back telling all kinds of stories. Um, Paul's case, <coughs> that, that happened. And so, what was God's response when Paul came out of that? And, and by the way, we're not sure when it happened, possibly in Lystra. Remember, they stoned him, left him for dead, and the, uh, the disciples gather around him, and he gets up and goes on trucking to the next town. Are you talking about the seventh heaven experience? Third, third. Third heaven experience? Yes. And, and we're not told exactly what that was, but that's a possible likelihood. He gets, he's about to meet his maker, and he gets this vision of what heaven, third heaven, looks like. Uh, and in Jewish thinking at the time, you had seven, seven levels of heaven. Um, and he sees that, and then the Lord says, Okay, Paul, enough is enough. Come back here. And um, and so he saw all kinds of stuff that God said to him, you will not open your mouth and talk about it. And because of that, uh, just to make sure that that was the case, what did God do? A thorn in the flesh. Thorn in the flesh. And uh, we can sit here and speculate till the cows come home uh, about what that looked like. A good possibility is that it was some kind of visual impairment uh, because in Acts, in, in Galatians chapter 6, Paul concludes the epistle by saying, look with what large letters I write. In other words, uh, as was the case with the other epistles where he had an amanuensis, a scribe, to write the epistle, um, in, in this case, he also added uh, something at, at the end of think Thessalonians. But in this case, he said, look at what large letters, i.e., why would a person write with large letters? He couldn't see very well. Okay? So, was a thorn in the flesh something else? Maybe. But in any event, um, the emphasis in that passage is not exactly what it was. The emphasis was, you will not be conceited. And oh, by the way, in case you forget, you will not be conceited. So whatever the thorn in the flesh was, it was designed to be something that got his attention. So, uh, kind of brief, maybe not so brief, review and that's where we are tonight. What we'd like to look at, and Rabbi David is going to keep me honest so we don't run over too much, is a couple things. One is the um, sermons that Paul gives in a couple of significant places. 
um, in the synagogue in Sidian of Antioch. Remember that there was more than one Antioch. Uh, and remember where this is located? Anybody? Hmm? The Sidian, isn't it? Where Syria is now? It is in Turkey. Just, Turkey. just Turkey. S not much above, not much above where Syria is. Um, and then the other one is in Ath Athens, and then if presumably we'll have some time to to look at um, one or two passages, we'll we'll see how how we go. So um, let, let's first of all look at uh, Acts chapter thirteen. And uh, let's read that entire section. Um, beginning with uh, verse 23 and going to verse 41. So, um, do we have a uh, volunteer, Gail? <laughs> I think so. Okay, good. From this man's seed, in keeping with his promise... God oh, I'm sorry. I apologize. No. We need to go back a, a few verses to the beginning. Um, oh, I well, I did, but I wasn't 13? completely truthful. 16? Um, 16? Um, How far back? So Paul standing up and rushing. Let's see. No, let's, let's begin, um, begin with 14. I'm sorry. They passed on from Perga and came to Antioch of Pisidia. Entering the synagogue on the Shabbat, they sat down. After the reading of the Torah and the prophets, the synagogue leaders sent to them, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, speak. So Paul, standing up and motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel and God-fearers, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with an outstretched arm, he led them out of there. Can you pause for, ju for just a moment? Um, what did you notice about the uh, the synagogue setting? It had both um, Jewish people and Greek God fears Gentiles who had who had given up on idolatry but were not ready to uh, to, to, to proselyte exactly or could not become proselytes. Yeah, and and so. Um, here you see uh, a great deal of similarity to the synagogue setting uh, in Yeshua's synagogue uh, in, in, in Luke chapter 4. Uh, they read from, from the Torah and the prophets. Um, and the synagogue rulers say to him, if you have a message of encouragement, please speak. Well, here they see this guy who's clearly rabbinic looking uh, and they say you know we're not exactly Jerusalem so would you bring us a word uh, my point is saying that uh, is sometimes when folks read Acts and they see all the references to the synagogue they assume that like that Paul like Yeshua just barged in and said I have a word for you and you're gonna listen uh, remember that there was a structure. There were elders, 
and a president in the synagogue and a person who uh, could stand up, actually a, a, a person who would sit down, uh, you read standing up and you talked sitting down, uh, would have to, to be invited to do that. Even Yeshua had to get, uh, had to operate under authority. So, he, Paul stands up and, and he begins to talk. Please continue, Gail. So Paul, standing up and motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel and God fears listen. Oh, I'm so sorry. I already read that. 18. For about 40 years he put up with them in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave their land as an inheritance. All of this took about 450 years. After that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, son of Kish, and of the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. After removing him, he raised up David to be their king. He also testified about him and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do my will. From this man's seed, in keeping with his promise, God brought to Israel a savior, Yeshua. Before his coming, John had proclaimed an immersion of repentance to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his service, he said, What do you suppose me to be? I am not he. But behold, one is coming after me, whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who are God-fearers, it is to us the message of this salvation has been sent. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, not recognizing him or the sayings of the prophets that are read every Shabbat, filling these words by, con by condemning him. Though they found no charge worthy of a death sentence, they asked Pilate to have him executed. When they had carried out all that had been written about him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. For many days he appeared to those who had come up from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we proclaim to you good news. The promise to the fathers has arrived. For God has fulfilled his promise to the children, to us, by raising up Yeshua, as it is also written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have become your father. But since he raised him up from the dead, never to return to decay, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, you will not permit your holy one to see decay. For after David had served God's purpose in his own generation, he went to sleep and was laid with his fathers and saw decay. But the one whom God raised up did not see decay. Keep going. 41, he said. 41, yeah. Therefore, let it be known to you, brothers, that, that through this one is proclaimed to you the removal of sins, including all those from which you could not be set right by the Torah of Moses. Through this one, everyone who keeps trusting is made righteous. Be careful, then, so that what is said in the prophets may not come upon you. Look, you scoffers, be amazed and vanish away. For I am doing a work in your days, a work you will never believe, even if someone tells it to you in detail. Thank you. So, question already? Comment? So, 
back when he saw he's quoting John. Right. How did he know John said that? What we have to remember that uh, that there was a great deal of oral culture among the believers at the time. They remember Paul came to to Jerusalem. He spent days, some days, with the disciples, and then he would come back periodically. So. Uh, there was communication from the uh, the apostles who had been there, who had been with Yeshua, and knew about John. In fact, uh, we know that one or two of the uh, disciples of Yeshua were disciples of John. Uh, so from the time he was persecuting believers, Christians, to the time he's now doing all of this traveling and preaching, right. he has this learning curve like this? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's a lot of years that have passed that mm -hmm. the book of Acts doesn't make clear. Yeah. And so we're, at this point, possibly looking at 10 years or so. Um, and um, anything else that that jumps out at you about about Paul's presentation here, Saul's presentation at this point. But it's all truth. It's all facts. Okay, what kind of facts? I mean, you were just saying. I'm just saying. You said his presentation, and I'm saying, yeah, but it's all facts. Yeah, yeah. But he could have presented it differently. That, that that's that's really my point. In, in this kind of setting, it's very geared towards the audience that are okay. sitting there which will be radically different someplace else. Yeah. I just thought it was rather interesting that he, um, when he was addressing, he said this message wasn't just sent to the Jewish person, it was also sent to God bearer. Yeah. The message of the good news, and I thought that was rather interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, um, the notion of God fears was particularly strong at this point, uh, because you have to remember that a lot of the pagans had become disillusioned with with the idol worship and and attached themselves any place that there was a synagogue they attached themselves to that synagogue uh, what jumped out one of the things that jumped out at me was this long historical recitation he gives like a cliff notes version of the beginning of Israel Israel the people right all the way through Yeshua right why does he do that because he is preaching to a mixed audience. He's giving a context. Ah, he's giving a context so that people don't think like, who is this upstart Yeshua that we heard about or possibly heard about? Uh, he wants to draw the connection. Well, and as you said before, when he, Stephen did a very similar thing, he started with what took place in Egypt as a point of reference to say that God works outside the land of Israel. Right. Yeah. So I don't know if Paul's keeping that in mind also when he gives his recitation with starting with what took place in Egypt. Well, the the the, the point perhaps is not so much God working outside, but God working. Period. And so Yeshua, as he's presenting Yeshua to them, is within the context of what God has already done with Israel. Yeah. Uh, it's not something that is bizarre and something funky out there, but it's a continuation. Um, also, did you notice 
uh, his quotations of, of Scripture. Psalm 2, Psalm 16. Okay. And uh, also, and this is not unusual, because you see that also in Hebrews, where they quote uh, a statement from, from Scripture, and they will say something like, somewhere it says such and such. Because remember that um, everything was on a scroll, and the chapters and verses didn't come about until some archbishop in Paris decided that they were going to, to put uh, um, numbers. numbers and etc. So, but in any event, yeah, all this is part of the context. Um, and then, then he puts kind of a zinger there. Um, this is something for you to consider. And oh, by the way, don't don't think that this is something you can just listen and blow it off. Um, forgiveness of sins. Now, what is unusual about Paul saying that? What did people think in those days about salvation? What would salvation look like? You had to burn it through works. Only God sacrifice. could forgive sin. That, okay. You had to go to the temple and make a sacrifice. All right. What kind of salvation were people looking for? Freedom from the Romans? Yeah. Yeah. Political uh, deliverance, uh, although in this case... They were still under Roman domination, but um, they were looking for political um, deliverance. Were and they also thinking in terms of only this life, or were they thinking in terms of eternal life? Absolutely not, eternal life. Um, remember for Jewish people then, and frankly for a lot of Jewish people today, uh, what matters is here and now. Um, I mean, the notion of eternal life is something that Judaism teaches in, in the writings, but not typically for most people, something that, that they really frankly care about. So, um, in, in, initially, um, it was well, well enough received to, to where they say to him, come back. And then... Um, the next Shabbat, uh, he gets all kinds of audience, and uh, verse 45, um, what happens there? Greg, would you read that, please? 45. When the Jewish leaders saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and tried to contradict what Paul was saying by reviling him. Uh, I'm sorry, please go on to verse four, uh, 47. Both Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary for the word of God to be spoken to you first, since you reject it and judge yourselves unfit for eternal life. Behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light in the nations, so that you may bring salvation to the end of of the earth. So when Paul says we now turn to the Gentiles, what did he mean by that? Mm -hmm. 
ones who understand have maybe an understanding of eternal life? No? Well, well he's saying if the Jews aren't, if you Jews aren't interested, we have people who are. Okay. Is this a, an absolute statement? No, because <clears throat> it still goes to the synagogue. Uh, and, re and remember, sometimes people extract stuff that is not there. Paul is not saying from this point on, we will never come back to another synagogue ever again. This is simply a local, a local issue, a local response. And by the way, remember also um, in uh, verse 43, many of the, the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. What does that imply about a bunch of these Jewish guys? They came to the Lord. Evidently. So, followed Paul and Barnabas wasn't just Paul is going here and, and we're going to, you know, follow along like a bunch of, of uh, gooselings follow Mother Goose. This is obviously those it was productive in a Jewish community. So when it says the Jews did such and such, obviously what what does it mean? Well, it's some Jewish leaders. Does it mean all the Jews? No, it's some Jews. Obviously, part of the Jewish community gets very upset, very jealous. But again, remember that there were some Jewish people who evidently came into the kingdom through Paul's ministry at that synagogue on that occasion. Yeah? I am um, slightly going back, but I had a question about uh, salvation. And when Paul is, is suggesting um, salvation for sin and so forth, you know, you, we, the, um, the animal sacrifices couldn't atone for sins that were you know, Yad Ramah, you know, that type of a sin. Right. So uh, how did, yeah, how did they, how, how did back then, how did they feel that this was, was taken care of? An intentional sin. They had the person just had to be cut off. There was no such thing as atonement for that. This is before Yeshua. Yeah, that's, uh, in Numbers 15, we're told that when a person sins uh, defiantly, Yad Ramah, high, high hand lifted, um, that they've cut themselves off from God. They're, they're worthy of death, which means not just physical death, but, but they're gone, period. No atonement for them. Uh, pretty scary stuff, but uh, that's a rare occasion. Most of the time, uh, atonement was available for people who sin unintention unintentionally, and even for people who sin intentionally. Uh, in Leviticus uh, 5 and 6, we're told that um, if, if a person defrauded somebody else, there was atonement for them, but what they had to do is they had to bring a sacrifice, they had to bring about restitution. Of course, you remember short little guy who climbed the tree? Uh, classic Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus. Uh, classic example. So, God provided atonement uh, on lots of for lots of different sins, but the Yad Ramah was something that was exceptional. 
And, and do you think they understood that you with the superiority of, 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 I mean, did they understand the superiority of Yeshua's sacrifice? They obviously don't. I, I, I mean, because um, what they do know is that there is a one-to-one -one correlation. Uh, you, you commit a sin and you wake up and smell the coffee and you said, I sinned, and you go and you bring um, an animal sacrifice of one kind or another, and you get forgiven for that particular sin. But then you have all kinds of other sins. It's like the, 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 the notion of if you were up near the Lebanese border and you became aware of your sin, you had to get an animal, bring it down to Jerusalem, um, offer the sacrifice, and on the way you probably had crosswords with your wife or your child, <coughs> which meant that you had additional sins. So, back. huh? You had to come back and do it all over again. Well, it, uh, atonement was there, but it was somewhat limited, which is what the book of Hebrews talks about. So the notion, you know, Paul is saying uh, forgiveness of sins uh, through Yeshua. Uh, and, and by the way, remember that, uh, that these sermons were cliff notes. In other words, he probably preached knowing, knowing Saul for half an hour, hour or something like that. And so we don't know exactly what, what is involved here, but... Uh, and also remember that Luke explains that um, that so, uh, so Paul and Barnabas took these people who had c believed and and kind of gave them additional instruction. So uh, lots of things we don't know, but the short version is there was some fruit, both with the Jews, uh, uh, Jewish listeners, and also with the with the Gentile uh, God-fearers. Uh, part of my point is that Paul came here and he was very focused to communicate to an audience because he knew that particular audience. And by the way, um, in, in, uh, in Acts 17 it says, Paul came to the synagogue as was his custom. So people think, well, his custom, that was a s pure strategy evangelistic strategy knowing that you go where where people are and so you know he gets up in the morning and Shabbat he says well I would rather go fishing but today I'm gonna go and uh, uh, go to the synagogue as was his custom means he did what he always did on Shabbat morning he goes to the synagogue all right Hi, one last thing. Um, so just to clarify since the synagogues were mixed Right. Um, when he was making the statement, I'm going to go to the Gentiles, what he meant was he was going to the non-Godfellers. In other words, he was going to the Gentile population at large. Correct. Correct, yeah. And typically what that meant is he would go to the Agora, the marketplace, um, which is what he did. So, um, boy, um, all right. Um, the other main sermon that we have is in Acts 17, so let's turn to that. Verse 
verse uh, 15 and uh, verse 15 to 34. And uh, Steve, if you have... Yeah, 13, please. 34? Yeah. 15. 15. Those escorting Paul brought him as far as Athens. After receiving an order for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was aroused within him when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he was debating in the synagogue with the Jewish people and the God-fearers, as well as in the marketplace every day with all who happened to be there. Also, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, What's this babbler trying to say? While others, he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign deities, because he was proclaiming the good news of Yeshua and the resurrection. So they took Paul to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are talking about, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and foreigners visiting there used to pass their time doing nothing but telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in all ways you are very religious. For while I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship without knowing, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hands, nor is he served by human hands as if he needed anything, since he himself gives to everyone life and breath and all things. From one, he made every nation of men to live on the face of the earth, having set appointed times and the boundaries of their territory. They were to search for him, and perhaps grope around for him and find him. Yet he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. Since we are his offspring, we ought not to suppose the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an engraved image of human art and imagination. Although God overlooked the periods of ignorance, now he commands everyone everywhere to repent. For he has set a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed. He has brought forth evidence of this to all men by raising him from the dead. Uh, 34. You're at 32. Now, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began scoffing. But others said, We will hear from you again about this. So Paul left from their midst. But some men joined with him and believed. Among them Dionysus, a member of the council of the Aragopolis, a woman named Demarius, and others with him. Thank you. Uh, we're talking apples and giraffes here. Okay. Um, and, and by the way, here in Athens, there was some kind of a Jewish community large enough to have a synagogue. Um, and... Uh, as well as, again, Jews and God-fearing Greeks. Um, here this time, nothing is said about what's taking place in the synagogue, other than 
is reasoning, arguing with them. And by the way, uh, if arguing back then was like arguing in a Jewish context today, it was not mild and mellow. Uh, it was a lot of hand gestures and facial twitching and so on. Um, banging on the table? Well, if there was a table to, to bang on, but yeah. Um, so he goes to the Agora um, and he talks. Uh, how he talks, we don't know. Possibly stands on something, but in any event, uh, here we have these philosophers uh, who start to argue with him. By the way, the Epicureans and Stoics uh, the Epicureans believe that pleasure was the ultimate good, uh, but that you had to do it in a way that is reasonable. In other words, you couldn't you couldn't go uh, all mashugi in in order to get pleasure. The Stoics, on the other hand, uh, talked that um, reason and virtue was the ultimate good, um, and you have to have a life that was properly balanced and calm. Um, and so they don't get what Paul's saying um, because for them you have a whole bunch of gods and goddesses not that they believed in those gods and goddesses um, but you know that was part of their culture so they bring him to the Areopagus does anybody know what the Areopagus was? wasn't that the that's no, it was a council. Oh. It was a council that was involved in ruling on two basic areas. One was criminal offenses, um, and the other one was religious matters. In other words, they, they were sort of the, the gatekeepers uh, of all kinds of stuff that came into Athens, because remember that they spent a lot of time talking having their both sessions, as it were, uh, talking about all kinds of wild and woolly things. So the Areopagus felt it was their responsibility to filter out stuff that was way out there. Um, was a governmental function or a church function, but lower? It was actually both. It was actually both, because they had authority over the religious and also the uh, some legal uh, criminal and such. Were they like over the city? Yeah. Okay. And yeah. So. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So these guys were heavy hitters. So when they bring uh, Paul into the uh, Areopagus, by the way, it was a very high place. It was also called Mars Hill. Uh, when, when they bring Paul there, it's somewhat like what it was coming before the Sanhedrin. Um, and, and, and Paul doesn't start out by getting in their faces and say, you guys are full of beans and you, you worship this idi idiotic gods and goddesses. Yeah? Um, would they consider that to be a compliment, that they were religious? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, religious in the sense of sophisticated religious. We got this God, that God, the other God, and oh, by the way, we have a, 
an altar to the unknown God, whoever she, it, or him may be. Um, Paul obviously does his homework here. Um, and he begins simply by, you don't see him going to the Psalms or the prophets or any of that. He begins by saying, okay, you guys look, you see the sun and the moon, you, you know, those are things you can see. Well, there's there's a, a, a creator, there's a God behind that. Not, you know, not one that you can put... Yeah, not one that you can put in, in a temple, but he's bigger than that. Um, and he determines what needs to, to happen. And, and here is the classic, you know, classic clever response. And oh, by the way, uh, he does what your poet says is, is the truth. Uh, a, a, a guy named Aratus, who was a poet, in him we live and, live and move and have our being, etc., etc. Uh, so, I'm not telling you anything that is absolutely radical up to this point. Um, and, and this God, verse 27, is not far from us. Uh, then then he, he puts the uh, take-home message since since we are God's offspring you know in the past he's overlooked such stuff but now he expects you to sit up and pay attention now what does he mean when he says God overlooked uh, was it okay for people to be idol worship idol worshipers back then <coughs> Verse 30, that one, in the past, God overlooked such a, that one. Yeah, that one. So Paul is not not preaching universalism. You know, you can get to God somehow, and in the past you somehow got got to God through this, that, and the other. What, what he is saying is something we find in Romans chapter 2, and that simply is that God judges people on the basis of what they know not on the basis of what they don't know uh, Maurice well that's what I was going to say it's meant that um, in the past he didn't hold you accountable for the knowledge of Yeshua but now right. he will right um, it was also a good approach instead of getting their back up and saying you were stupid enough to believe in this but now you know, instead of that sort of approach yeah um, you know and, and somehow he manages to take the conversation and bring it to Yeshua. Not just Yeshua. He has given proof that he will come and judge the world by verse 31, by raising him from the dead. Okay, now... Why are these guys snickering? Because they don't believe in the resurrection. Mm -hmm. uh, they do and the, they don't. Well, other people had been raised from the dead by that time. Well, so why wouldn't they believe not that? in that culture. Oh. Um, no, maybe it was a way of just <clears throat> kind of like going, well, well, we'll be hearing later about this again. I mean, it kind of like you have 
Paul's going to continue on that. Maybe. Well, some of the people were willing to listen. But it was like when he said that, it's like he crossed the line. Why? Because they, they thought that was all hooey. They thought being raised from the dead, oh yeah, now now you've gone too far. Did they believe in reincarnation? No, they didn't. No, they didn't. But remember that the Greeks did not believe in a physical resurrection. Why? Because when you died, you died. Well, it's the last thing you want. Yeah, it's the last thing you want. I mean, what really matters is the mind and the intellect and the soul and the spirit and so on and so forth. The body is... Uh, you can do with it what you want, you etc., etc., so that's why Paul has to spend a whole chapter, chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians, to talk about the resurrection, physical resurrection. Like you are dead, you rise physically from the dead. Uh, because you guys, some of you don't believe that. Part of Greek culture was uh, physical resurrection is stupid. Well, they're, they're into logic. Right? The huh? Greeks are logical thinkers. It, it, supposedly, but, but yeah, into, into logic, into, into intellect, into knowledge, spirit, yeah. But they also glorified the body. Yeah, that's, that's why we got our Olympics. I mean, I mean and they love the, um, the, the, human, the human body, they love the nakedness of the human. They very much glorified the body, so I'm a little bit... They, they, they did, they did, and they didn't. Okay, but they still compartmentalized it. I think is a, is they, a yeah. good word to use because they didn't see that the body had much value. Yeah, and yes, they they had the the Olympics and so on and so forth. But for them, you had two basic. Uh, it's called dualism. You had the physical. You took care of the physical. However, what really mattered was the mind and the intellect, the spirit, and so on, which is why Paul has to spend so much time uh, talking to the Corinthians about if there's no physical resurrection, then eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. So some of them think that Paul is stupid because it doesn't fit. Others are saying, well, you know, it's interesting, it's the newest thing down the pike, and there's nothing else happening, so yeah, why don't you come back? But some of them, including a member of the council, Dionysus, um, accept the Lord. Uh, and a woman named Damaris and some of the others. I don't know if, if, if I could ask, if I may. Uh, what was a Greek, just off on counterman, what is a Greek understanding of, did they even believe in such a concept as sin? No. No, because, because, and that depended on what school of philosophy you're with. It wasn't sin if it was something that uh, was counterproductive. In other words, for example, with the Epicureans, uh, have pleasure, but don't go overboard. You know, don't, don't do something stupid. Uh, and it's more and, of a cultural thing, not a sin. Like you would just be looked down upon if you were glutton or something. Yeah, it, it was. It wasn't just a culture. It was. It was poor decision making kind of thing. And the, the, the society wouldn't feel the need, wouldn't feel that somebody has crossed a line, such that this person needs to be done away with. Correct. Unless unless, unless there were specific societal crimes, 
such as murder, etc., etc., the the old-fashioned Greek uh, religion did understand sin in a sense of here are the gods, and if you're stupid enough to uh, take the gods off, then the gods would look down and, and Zeus would throw a lightning bolt or something. Um, they but, still had a sense of justice then. Eh, some kind of sense of justice, but but then the gods themselves uh, got up in the morning, they had a bad day, and they did God knows what. But uh, in other words, the relationship was more of an appeasement one. The purpose of the gods was not not in terms of atoning or anything like that, but more appeasement. If you want their blessing, if you want their help... Um, if you want them to, nice, to be nice to you, you... Be, ni be nice to them, whatever. Yeah. It's, it seems as though, I mean, because they did have uh, ethics and laws and so forth, but that was not really connected to the Greek gods and goddesses. No, because the this Greek... Different thing entirely. No, the Greek gods and goddesses were were just as cantankerous and childish and uh, unpredictable as the humans were. So, so worship of the mind. Yes. However, again, remember we're talking about the old old timey religion versus where the Greeks were at this point. They were much more sophisticated. But what would they then have understood? When he said, um, you know, he's asking everybody to repent, right. A, and because he has set a day on which he will judge in righteousness, would they even understand what righteousness is? And the judgment and all that sort of thing. Well, they have some basic notion that if you cross the line with God, he, he will throw a lightning bolt or he will judge you somehow. Uh, nothing like... Um, righteousness in in the sense that we understand it. Um, I, I think they knew something. Because, for example, he talked about the God who created the world. Right. Um, they didn't immediately jump to the conclusion he was talking about Zeus. And then he also um, said through this man who is resurrected, they, they didn't ask him, well, who are you talking about? So it sounds to me like this crowd had some, some concept. Again, we're talking about cliff notes here. Um, my assumption is that what we see here, uh, think about it, you can read it in, what, five minutes? Yeah. Uh, most likely, Paul was there talking to them half an hour, hour, maybe interacting with members of the Areopagus. Um, not to mention all the days in the market in the synagogue, too. Yeah. Yeah, well, not in the synagogue, but yes, in the marketplace. And so um, there's been some communication. Um, some of them are interested enough to say to him, yeah, we, we want to continue. Uh, not because that there's necessarily spiritual hunger, uh, but this is the, 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 the most interesting thing coming down the pike. I love debate. They love debate. They said that. Yeah. They love talking about this, that, and the other. Yeah, yeah. It's just it, it, it's <clears throat> a sort of an idea of how to think about how do you approach someone who doesn't even have a concept of sin or wrongdoing. You know, how do you engage them to get anywhere in a conversation? Well, and and and, and this is for me uh, um, a textbook example of how you come from one totally different culture. 
like Paul in, in the synagogue and quoting scripture and talking about uh, David and resurrection coming to these guys who have gods and goddesses and they don't believe in the gods and goddesses but um, they have a an altar to some some unknown god uh, he connects with them and there's is something called the law of apperception which means you connect with people based on what they know not based on what they don't know in other words you don't worry about someone that understands sin you might approach them from the evilness of the world or something like that you try to find the common ground you uh, that's that's well put michael you you look to find a common ground the whole thing of meet them where they are yeah that's exactly it he, he and by the way if you were to look at what he has to say in lystra with the rank pagans you see the same kind of thing but but here this is a classic example of the fact that that the lord wants to stretch us because we live we sometimes end up being in a believing ghetto. And I was talking to someone, uh, one of our young, uh, younger, young adults, that we have a believing dentist and a believing uh, CPA and, and a believing lawyer, and etc. We live, we're cloistered to some extent, and then God brings us out and He puts us in situation with people that. If we talk about the Lord, it's like we're talking Chinese to them, not Chinese. Uh, Klingon. Um, and so, th this for me is, is a very powerful example that God wants us to be able to communicate about God in a godless culture. And we live, folks, in a godless culture. Um, and, and we can either do like what some believers tend to do and they're coming after us and etc etc or say for one reason or another the Lord has put us here um, the culture is what it is and yes at some point he will come and judge and etc this point we're called to be faithful and simply say Lord um, I want to be available to communicate the good news to people who are like these Athenians or like the folks in, in the synagogue and, and like Frank, the folks in Whole Foods. Huh? Or like the folks in Whole Foods. Like folks in a Whole Food or you know, other places. Uh, you know, Starbucks or you know, other places where where people have absolutely no clue about God, about sin, about e eternal life, about salvation. All they know is here and now. Mm -hmm. um, but he's able. And, and at least for me, an encouraging example was Ellen Ritt. She came to us several years ago, convinced that God was somehow in nature, that when she goes to the mountains, uh, she experiences God, whatever he or she or it is. And this past Shabbat, she was immersed as a disciple of Yeshua. This is one example. And so we want to pray for more, right? Amen. All right. Michael, finish, please. Father, we thank you for the life of Paul.
Thank you, Lord, for the events that caused the different transactions to make him a hero. We thank you, Lord, that you gifted him. And, uh, Lord, Paul was definitely gifted both naturally and supernaturally. But, Lord, it reminds us that you're able to take our gifts that we've learned both naturally before we were saved and the gifts that you've given us now that we are saved. And so, Lord, we ask that you would empower us to reach a, a world that is dying out there to know you. And we pray, Lord, for each of us to have divine appointments. Watch over us as we depart and bring us back here safely on Shabbat. We ask in the precious name of Yeshua. Amen. Amen.